This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. I'm Chris Sims. I'm out here in Alberta. And Franco, you're a federal director out there in Ottawa. And one of the big to-dos around this time of year is the fiscal update. It's basically halfway through the fiscal year. That's where the finance minister comes out and lets us know where we are on our fiscal map, how things are going as far as the budget goes. How is it looking? Well, not good. Uh, I mean... We've been hearing for the last little while Freeland or finance minister uh, federally Christian Freeland saying, hey, uh, there's some fiscal restraint. Uh, We're going to try to spend taxpayers money more prudently. But we didn't see any of that in this fiscal update. Not at all. What we're seeing is Freeland somehow managing to spend 20 billion dollars over budget. So there is no prudence. There is no fiscal restraint when you spend 20 billion dollars over your own budget. Okay, so. How do you overspend by $20 billion on your own budget without, I don't know, a dam breaking or something? Like, why did they do that? Yeah, no kidding. So let me just break down the numbers for you completely here. Freeland's April budget said that the government was going to spend $452 billion. Now, the fiscal update says that the government will spend $472 billion this year, which means that in just seven months... Freeland is going to be spending $20 billion over her budget this year. And let's remember here, Freeland's April budget wasn't exactly the epitome of austerity. Uh, The April budget had $90 billion in more spending above pre-pandemic levels. And remember, the government was already spending all-time highs before the pandemic. So it's not like she's outspending a budget given to her by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. No, no, no. She's outspending her own big spending budget that she released just seven months ago. Okay, so I want to get into what's causing these overruns and these cost overruns, but I'm I'm desperately trying to pick a little bit of optimism out of this update. Uh, Doesn't it show it'll eventually be balanced, this update? Well, uh, Freeland is essentially pinky promising taxpayers that will get a balanced budget in 2027. But you know what? Taxpayers shouldn't buy it. Taxpayers should be skeptical that this government will ever balance the budget. Uh, Number one, 2027. When's that? It's after the next election, isn't it? So there, that should tell you all you need to know. But let's really dive into the numbers here. Uh, because look, to balance the budget in 2027, the government would need to take an extra $129 billion from taxpayers compared to how much money they had coming in at the beginning of this budget year. But hold on a second. Because the good folks at the Parliamentary Budget Officer, that's the government's own independent budget watchdog, they produce a lot of good stuff. Well, they released their budget projections only a few weeks ago, and the PBO projects that revenue in 2027 will be $11 billion lower than what Freeland is projecting. Okay, so the PBO says, well, no, 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 the revenues are going to be way lower, but there's more because the PBO also projects future higher interest charges, right? Interest charges on the government credit card. They always seem to forget that part, Franco. They always do. Yeah, one of the big problems with never-ending deficits is higher interest charges. So if you look at the PBO's revenue projections and interest charge projections, well, instead of balancing the budget in 2027, the government would run a $9.4 billion deficit, okay? So Freeland is lowballing the revenue, or sorry, uh, let me rephrase that. Freeland is lowballing the interest charges 
right and highballing the revenue but if you look at the pbo's numbers it would suggest that the government wouldn't balance the budget it would run a 9.4 billion dollar deficit so not exactly a rounding error now, I think we need to be fair here and look back over the entire track record of this government when it comes to spending. <laughs> uh, they've, they've promised to balance the budget before. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau famously said the budget will balance itself. I think what he tried to mean by that was our economy is going to be so super duper awesome, grown from the heart outwards that it'll just pay for itself. No, you know, no fiscal restraint required. Uh, he also had promised uh, to balance the budget in 2019. So before COVID, no Ollie Ollie oxen free here. And he, he broke that promise. So they've got a long track record of not being able to balance their budgets. Yeah, I mean, that is a fantastic point. I mean, the Trudeau government has uh, never met a budget that it couldn't blow, right? <laughs> you uh, you mentioned that famous, the infamous quote, I should say, where Trudeau was saying, you know, the budget will balance itself. That was back in 2014, mm -hmm. which means that, uh, what has it been, a little bit more than eight years now since he mm -hmm. made that comment? Well, the Trudeau government has not stumbled into a balanced budget. Instead, the Trudeau government will add about $561 billion to the debt by the end of this year, just since the Trudeau government has taken power. And uh, Chris, I remember uh, his promise back in 2015 when he was running for prime minister, uh, run a few modest deficits, balance the books by 2019. Well, that didn't yeah. happen. No. He missed that budget balance by $20 billion even before the pandemic. So if we look at the track record of this government over time in the past, if we look at the fact that Freeland can't even manage to stay on budget with her spending, I think taxpayers have every right to believe that the Trudeau government will never balance the budget. Let's look at some of the, the costs, the big expenses on that side of the ledger here. Uh, what are we looking at here for interest on the debt? It's something nobody likes to talk about. And apparently the federal government likes to pretend doesn't even exist. So what are we paying right now as far as interest goes on our debt? Well, the interest charges on the government credit card are going to be around 35 billion dollars this year now that's eight billion dollars more than the government projected in its budget in april so in a seven months we're also seeing interest charges go up by about eight billion dollars and also it's 35 billion dollars that can't be used to hire more nurses to improve government services or to lower taxes because that money is being paid to the bond fund managers on bay street and remember, interest charges, when I say it's going to cost us $35 billion, I mean it's going to cost us $35 billion this year. Interest charges are an annual cost, right? So if you add up all of the interest charges that the fiscal update projects through 2027, well, interest charges are going to cost taxpayers about $252 billion during this time. That's a cost of $6,300 for every Canadian. Ugh. Bloody depressing. Okay, it is depressing. Uh, but I wanted to leave our listeners uh, and our viewers with a little bit of hope. Um, this is not impossible. Balancing the budget is not impossible. Uh, you and I talk about this a lot offline, too. Uh, we don't just do the fun stunts like we do with Fibber or Porky the Waste Hater and fun stuff like that. Uh, you guys did a lot of homework there in the Ottawa office and presented a massive uh, budget plan for this government. How could they actually balance the budget? Where? What's the way out of this mess? 
stop wasting so much money, start cutting some taxes. Okay. Look, uh, it's, it's actually crazy how easy it could be for the government to balance the budget, a very, very modest spending restraint. And to your point, I mean, we presented the 80 page budget submission to Mm -hmm. the finance committee and all the government would have to do to balance the budget next year would to be bring spending back to the pre pandemic and all time high levels adjusted upward for inflation and population growth. Um, But look, when I say stop wasting money, I mean it. Uh, Look at all the recent stories of waste. You you had $1.3 million uh, that the governor general spent on a week long trip to the Middle East. You have somebody in the government who uh, spent $6,000 per night in a hotel room during the the (laughs) queen's funeral. Uh, 300,000 bureaucrats in the federal government got a pay raise while their neighbors lost their job during lockdowns. We've seen billions and billions of dollars thrown away to corporate welfare when that money should be staying in taxpayers' pockets. And of course, the more the government wastes, the higher taxes are going to go. We've seen the carbon tax up payroll taxes up, even alcohol taxes. Samer, every time you go buy your favorite box of wine, (laughs) you're paying more money on your alcohol taxes because of the feds. Um, But look, step number one towards fiscal restraint, towards fiscal prudence, is maybe the finance minister shouldn't spend $20 billion over her own budget. Just an idea. (laughs) When you go out and you got your shopping list, don't do all those impulse buys as you're heading up to the cash register. Maybe cut out, you know, metaphorically disney plus might be a good idea (laughs) all right franco uh thanks so much for this if folks want to actually read our pre-budget submission it's full of graphs and charts and all sorts of balanced budgety stuff head on over to our website taxpayer.com you and i just published an op-ed in the sun newspaper chain uh about the carbon tax we talk about the carbon tax all the time in particular how it hammers us every time we go to fuel up our cars on the way to work but you know what winter is uh around the corner in some places your neck of the woods it's here (laughs) and guess what it's also going to punish us when we need to heat our homes so simmer Let's walk us through the cost of the carbon tax on our heating bills. Yeah, we really have to do that. Uh, One of the things I love many things about the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, but one of the things I love most is that our supporters email us and we email them back. It's a two-way street, a very good relationship. And they actually email us their heating bills, like their energy bills, uh, especially in the wintertime, to show us exactly what we're paying uh, and what they're paying in the carbon tax. And then what I did with them, so I took propane, uh, furnace oil, natural gas, and then I did the numbers on how much they're paying in the carbon tax. And you're right. uh, We're here in Lethbridge and right, it's minus 21 outside right now. It is bloody cold without the wind chill, lots of snow on the ground. So uh, winter is already here. Yeah. And uh, look, when we talk about the carbon tax, not only do we have to consider what we're paying right now, but also that the government is more than tripling the carbon tax. Exactly. So let's get right into it. Uh, The current federal carbon tax, we're leaving British Columbia out of this because they're a basket case. Okay. So the current federal carbon tax is charged on fuels such as natural gas, propane and and furnace oil. Those are the three main things that people use to heat their homes in the winter that have carbon taxes attached to them. And again, like this is not an option. You know, people can't opt in and out of heating their home, even if they were, you know, some weird, rugged northern person. Uh, your pipes will literally burst and you'll ruin your house. So you have to use uh, fuels. What I found interesting is that a lot of uh, people still use propane 
and furnace oil. Most of yeah. us, as, as far as, you know, an oil and gas goes, most of us do use natural gas, but that requires a lot of infrastructure, right? There's a lot of civilization that goes into that. If you're living rural, uh, you need to have your fuel literally trucked to you. Uh, so you're still using things like propane and furnace oil. All of these fuels, okay, carry a carbon tax. So let's look at the prices. Natural gas has a carbon tax of 9.8 cents per cubic meter. Propane is hit with a carbon tax of 7.7 .7 cents per liter. That's how they measure it out. Furnace oil is a big one, 15.9 cents per liter carbon tax. So all of this adds up. Uh, a family up in Northern Alberta, like I said, they sent us a copy of their bill. I looked at it myself. Uh, they're using natural gas. Now they're up north. They're up past Edmonton. Okay, so it's bloody Arctic wasteland up there. Um, very cold. They used 850 cubic meters of natural gas in one cold winter month. Their carbon tax bill was $83, Franco, just for the carbon tax for that wow. month. Yeah. And now I know that's a big bill, but boy, oh boy, we got bigger ones. I did not pick the biggest one. Uh, so that's a lot of money to be spending. Uh, a little over next to us here in Saskatchewan, uh, family sent us their monthly bill uh, for propane. And they had about a thousand liters of propane delivered. One of those big trucks come in, they attach it. I actually have a propane handling license, so this is kind of fun. And they fill up the tanks. Um, so they got a thousand liters. The carbon tax bill on that for one month was $77, okay? Now, an Ottawa area family, uh, they sent us their furnace oil bill. Uh, mm. They get it delivered every two weeks. I was actually a little bit surprised that they're still using furnace oil, but I'm guessing it's probably out near Lanark or something like that. Uh, they got 222 liters, cost them $35 in the carbon tax. But again, remember, that's every two weeks. Do the math, that's around 70 bucks. So from December to March, around there, it would cost them around $280 in the carbon tax just to heat their home right now. People don't have that that money. No. Like people don't yeah. have that cash lying around. Something I don't think people in their Ottawa bubble understand. And, you know, I was also surprised, uh, speaking of Ottawa, to see the furnace oil uh yeah. in in the ottawa area you know i i thought that was more of an atlantic canada thing to heat your home so mm -hmm. so i guess it goes to show you know there isn't really a one size fits all in terms of people's you know just people's lives right not mm -hmm. everyone lives in that small 400 square foot condo uh with piped in gas heating in downtown ottawa uh <laughs> I not do, everyone I guess, but not everyone <laughs> you know what i mean not everyone i mean here's always what we're trying to get across to these out-of-touch politicians who live in their bubble look some people need to heat their homes, their larger homes, um, regardless of, of where you might live. A yeah. And just because you do have a home, it doesn't mean you're some type of money bags. No, no, no. I mean, so many average people who've worked their whole lives uh, to save and, and, and have bought a home for their family, will they require to heat their homes during these cold winter months? Yeah. Many people require to drive from Port Hope to Richmond Hill to get to work. They need gasoline. And what the carbon tax is doing on gasoline, on transportation fuel, but also on what we use to heater homes, is it's punishing Canadians for the necessities of life. Yeah, you nailed it there. And we use the word punishment in pretty much all of our articles for a really good reason. We use it on purpose because that is what the feds 
classify it as. So for folks who aren't in our weird, weird world of politics and economics and all that stuff, um, these laws just don't spring out of Ottawa, okay? They don't just, you know, fall out of the mind of the prime minister one day. These are policies that are worked on by human beings. Uh, they're often in, you know, lobby firms and strategy firms or academic enclaves. And these ideas come from somewhere and they're, they're, they're made up by teams of policy people. Then they get worked on and poured into legislation, okay? And then they go through the committee process and they go through the House of Commons, all that stuff. They come from people. That's how Ottawa works, okay? If you've got influence or not, if you've got that staffer job or not, that's how Ottawa works. And one of the architects of the Trudeau government's carbon tax is a man named Elliot Hughes. Now, he's not people in the in the game. They say, you know, hey, leave civilians out of this. He's not a civilian. <laughs> he was a full-on uh, policy wonk within the office on, on Parliament Hill. So, and it says so right on his CV. He's right out there. So, Elliot Hughes is one of the architects of the federal carbon tax, okay? He's he's a policy guy. He's not an MP, okay? But we debated him a while back on the News Forum channel, and he explained out loud that the carbon tax was indeed a punishment for the bad behavior of using oil and gas. Listen to this. Doing things like introducing a carbon tax is part of a broader plan that the government uh, wanted to, to to bring in and bring to Canadians to try and tackle some of the challenges that we face today, but are, are certainly about to face down the road. And so a carbon tax is is the most efficient, um, the most sort of fair uh, and, and, and an effective way in a market based way to okay. essentially punish sort of poor behavior. And that's the use of fossil fuels. You know, this is about providing predictability to the business community. So the idea that, you know, we know the business community knows what the investments and, and what the charges are going to be. Uh, from the from carbon pricing over the next number of years allows them to price that into their business decisions, um, because right now we're, you know Canada is in a race with other countries in terms of attracting uh, investment into our country, and and we have some challenges around that that we need to to face up to. But that predictability is going to be hugely important for those companies in the years to come. Chris, I'll let you respond to that. I know your organization that you represent does, generally speaking, address the taxpayer. But on a business level, do you think this new taxation will be an incentive? Do you think it will be attractive? Or are people saying, you know what, we've had enough, out we go? Of course, it's a horrible disincentive. You know what's great predictability? Not having a carbon tax in the first place. That's a nice baseline for predictability there. And we take issue with the idea that people using oil and gas is bad behavior and they need to be punished for doing so. People need to heat their homes. They need to get to work and they need to eat. And as we have outlined, people who are middle or lower income don't have fancy options and alternatives away from oil and gas. It is the lifeblood of our economy. I challenge anybody on this panel or anybody watching to look around their room right now, find me something that is not either made directly of oil produced by oil and gas or delivered to them using oil and gas. It is next to impossible. And the idea of, of taxing people for using something that essential is ridiculous. Again, this is a senior policymaker, okay? He's an architect of the carbon tax and how it is implemented in Ottawa, in Canada. Um, that's the same carbon tax that hits every fuel we use to get around, to deliver our supplies and our food, and to heat our homes. Let's dive a little bit deeper, okay. right? We all know that the carbon tax is driving up the cost of living at the worst possible time right now, 
But the big tax bill that we're already paying is about to get a lot worse as the carbon tax goes up, as they bring in a second carbon tax. Right now, the current carbon tax is about $50 per ton. It's going to more than triple to $170 a ton. Uh, So Simmer, can you just break down how this big tax bill is only going to be getting bigger? Yeah, um, I don't like I don't like any of this. Um, I like doing the math and breaking stuff down, but this is the part I dislike the most because it feels so grim, and we have to tell people that worse news is coming. But yeah, unless we tell them, I, we're not going to be able to fight it, and we're not going to be able to fix this. Okay, so let's look at those same bills just for clarity, because we have the same uh, volume and the same amount of fuel being used. Okay, so that Saskatchewan family with the propane with the thousand liters of propane per month, they're gonna have to pay about $260 for a month just for the carbon tax. So again, fast forward less than eight years from now, year 2030, we got a carbon tax of $170 a ton. That same family using the propane is gonna be $260 poorer per month just in the carbon tax. The Alberta household, the one up north past Edmonton with the natural gas bill, they're going to have to hand over about $280 in the carbon tax for one month of winter warmth. And that elderly Ottawa couple that are using the furnace oil, uh, they're going to have to pay about $834 extra, Franco, in the carbon tax just from December to March. Okay, and we know you need to heat your house between those times, too. So these are shockingly high costs for everyday working Canadians to have to bear just to stay warm in the wintertime. You know, let me just jump in here because in my head, yeah, I can hear my neighbor in my downtown Ottawa condo (laughs) apartment, I should say, (laughs) shrieking. What about the rebate? What about the rebate? (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the rebate. Okay, because the government likes to claim that Canadian households are going to be made better off with the rebate. No, no, no. The parliamentary budget officer, the government's own independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog shows that the government is using magic math. Okay. According to the parliamentary budget officer, the average household in Canada, the carbon tax will cost the average household in Canada anywhere between $299 all the way up to $671, depending on what province you live in, even after the rebate, okay? So let me break it down for you, Simmer, and for my mom, who both of you live right down the street in Lethbridge. (laughs) For you, for the average Albertan household, the carbon tax will cost you $671 this year, even after the rebate. That net cost is only going up as the carbon carbon tax goes up. So if you see on TV, if you hear one of your politicians, even if you hear one of your neighbors who unfortunately may have been watching some misleading statements from our government, if they say, well, what about the rebate? You say, no, 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 no. The government's own independent budget watchdog shows that even with the rebate, the average family is still out hundreds of dollars this year because of the carbon tax and that bill is only going up. Yeah. Absolutely. And you'll hear cabinet ministers still saying out loud with their face, like unashamedly, hey, you get more than you pay in. That's just not true. Like mathematically, that is not true. And so folks really need to push back on this. And this is where I think we really need to accept reality here. We also need to push back on the fact that those same sort of talking heads, whether they be well-meaning or not, that we'll hear quite often, We'll say things like, oh, well, you get back more of the rebates. Eh, wrong. 
absolutely not true. Two, they'll often kind of say something flippant, like, oh, well, just switch to an alternative. If you don't like the carbon tax and you don't like having to pay it, switch to an alternative. Stop. What? What alternative? This is the answer that they never give us. Where is the affordable, abundant, available fuel that we are all supposed to switch to, to avoid the carbon tax? Now, it's, I hope it's okay for me to share this with people, but you and I are both Star Trek fans, right? We don't have dilithium crystals to switch to. It would be super nice if we did, because I think everybody would if they could do it tomorrow, but we don't. They got nothing. We don't have an alternative, affordable, abundant energy source that we can simply switch to. Okay. So for those who are saying, you know, it doesn't exist yet, or we need to build to the future (laughs) or, you know, futuristic hydrogen will somehow help us here. That does not keep our homes warm right now. It does not help us with the carbon tax right now. Let's even go through the alternatives that we have right now. Okay. Solar and wind, super expensive unreliable, nearly non-existent, okay? Nuclear power, which has some promise to it, especially modular nuclear, it's not available for a lot of people across Canada. That takes a lot of time to build that infrastructure. And home heating with hydroelectric power, so say you were in British Columbia or Quebec and you use hydroelectric power to run your baseboard heating, most people can't afford that, even at current electricity rates. Okay, so the point is, is that the government is heaping on punishment for people who are doing, you know, the terrible sin of keeping themselves warm in the winter, something that's essential for their lives, but they have nowhere to go. They don't have the alternative to switch to. And that's what's really unfair here. Yeah, that needs to be stressed. There aren't these alternatives for people to to, you know, get to work right or uh really to heat their homes this is the necessities of life so it also needs to be stressed that the carbon tax is driving up the cost for canadians at the worst possible time where people are already struggling to put gas in their car or ground beef in their grocery cart and look uh the carbon tax is only going up then there's a second carbon tax coming in next year through fuel regulations and oh by the way there are no rebates at all with the second no. carbon tax. So that's just more costs. Now, Chris, you've done a really good job talking about these alternatives, but I know you also have some analysis in your back pocket about um, some of the math that's going on in British Columbia. So can you just share that before we wrap up? Yeah. And this is something that needs much more attention. And it's along the same lines of what we just said of where do you want us to go? What alternative energy? What switch do we all need to flip here, according to the government, to avoid the punishment of the carbon tax? Blank out. They have nothing. They can't say anything. Along those same lines, do a thought process right now. And I'll use British Columbia as an example, okay? Because they have the highest carbon taxes in all of North America. Uh, all, most of the government is trying to push people to electrify everything. And most of, the, most of their electricity comes from hydroelectric dams, which most people think is green energy. You have some extremists that say it's not, but whatever. So let's just use them as a thought experiment. Blair King is an energy analyst, really smart guy. He lives in Langley, okay? Um, He did the math on this a few years ago. If only British Columbia switched just their basic transportation, so not including industry, personal transportation and bare minimum home heating, like keeping the the pipes from bursting home heating to electric, BC would need nine new Site C dams. Nine of them 
for people who don't understand uh, how big the Site C Dam project is, the reason why it's called Site C is because it's the third big dam. Okay. Bill, you know, W.A.C. Bennett back in the 50s and 60s envisioned this dam being built and they called it Site C for that reason. The approval process for one dam of this magnitude takes around 20 years and we're still years away from being able to plug that thing into the grid here. We would need nine brand new ones tomorrow if everyone switched their personal vehicles and just their bare bones home heating to electricity. That's just in BC. The point here is we got nowhere to go. Government's backed us into a corner. They're punishing us with the carbon tax and there's no alternative. Same are great points. I've, you summed it up perfectly. So with that, everybody, look, there's a few things you could do right now because we do have to keep holding our politicians accountable. We can't just gab about the cost. So a few things you could do is, uh, look, Simmer took the lead on an article that we published in the Sun newspaper chain. Uh, we'll include that op-ed in the show notes. Please give it a read and share it with your friends and family. The second thing you guys can do out there in the ether listening to us gab is, uh, hey, next time you get your home heating bill, take a photo, send it to your member of parliament. Even a backbencher while collecting dust is also collecting a paycheck that is close to $200,000 a year. So they can get off their butts <laughs> and they can fix the problem. And step one in fixing the problem is scrapping the carbon tax. Franco, our work, also known as your work, <laughs> landed on the front page of the National Post. What's going on? Well, we were the first to discover that the governor general's week-long trip to the Middle East cost taxpayers, drum roll please, <laughs> $1.3 million. A week-long trip, $1.3 million. You can't make this stuff up, folks. I mean, now look, we don't have all the individual receipts, uh, so we don't know exactly what they were spending the $1.3 million on uh, at the time of recording this podcast, but we do have some of the receipts online and here's some of the things that they were spending while they're in the middle east 160 smackers for tourists and travel book guides which is crazy to me i mean they don't have phones they don't have google uh, they don't have there's google no internet Wikipedia. over there franco <laughs> oh my goodness oh my goodness well you know what they do have over there in the middle east they have five-star hotels you want to know how i know because the documents show that uh there was they were staying the governor general on their entourage were staying in some five-star hotels during many legs of the trip including the emirates tower in dubai and the sheraton grand doha resort in qatar now the reason i'm looking down at my notes is because i have no idea what those hotels are <laughs> i think one of them i actually i think one of them is one of the tallest buildings in the world whoa my gosh <laughs> sounds fancy they have a good view to see all of the money that they're wasting that's great another another crazy expense that we saw was nearly forty five thousand dollars for what appears to be a canceled trip to abu dhabi uh with no further details now many people <laughs> spend zero dollars not going to abu dhabi but they managed to spend forty five thousand dollars not going to abu dhabi <laughs> now remember this wow. is one week 1.3 million dollars okay so a huge expense for a week-long trip and we haven't heard a a real peep from the government to justify just what value if any taxpayers got from all this money spent i was just going to ask you for this amount of money they better have achieved a middle east peace deal man like what the heck is going on <laughs> and isn't this the same trip 
where they racked up six figures on airplane food for like beef Wellington and Carpaccio and stuff that I had to Google. Sure is. Sure is. Uh, Governor General Mary Simon and her entourage of about 30 or so people spent, what, six figures, nearly six figures on fancy airplane food on their way to Expo 2020 in Dubai. They enjoyed Beef Wellington. But what value did you, the taxpayer, get from this? You know, what value are taxpayers getting for the $1.3 million spent on a week-long trip to the Middle East? Now, remember, instead of spending $1.3 million on a week-long trip, taxpayers could have hired 16 more nurses for a year or covered the entire personal income tax bill of 78 Canadians making $75,000 this year. So here's the question. The $1.3 million question. Can the governor general prove that spending $1.3 million on a week-long trip to the Middle East is a better use of taxpayers' money than hiring more nurses or helping struggling Canadian taxpayers? Good luck with that. Yeah, that's not going to happen. We could certainly use those nurses down the street here. Um, Franco, you dug deeper. So this story first surfaced a while back. Uh, We heard a dollar figure on what was being spent, but we Mm -hmm. largely didn't know what it was being spent on. You actually managed to dig up what kind of food uh, these folks were buying on our dime. Now, I haven't eaten yet today, so this is going to make me super hungry. Can you describe to us what some of the fancy foods were? Yeah. Forgive me if I butcher some of these names. Uh, I've just (laughs) never had them before. (laughs) So let me me do my best. If you're ever in a fancy restaurant and you want dessert, do not order sweet bread. It is not a cinnamon bun. Oh, Just saying. Okay. Okay, noted. (laughs) <laughs> Noted. We're taking notes. We're taking notes. Okay, let me let me let me try my hand with some of these. Uh, beef Wellington with rajou served with roasted baby potato seasoned with rosemary and garlic with a side of glazed baby carrots. Mwah. Very good. Okay, there was also a buttery chicken tikka masala. I don't even know what that is with cauliflower rice and steamed zucchini. Uh, then apple and cranberry stuffed pork tenderloin served with oven roasted cubed squash sautéed Brussels sprouts with a maple gravy. Yummy. Uh, another meal. Let me read another meal for you. Pan fried chicken scallopini in creamy mushroom wine reduction sauce with capers served over fettuccine with a side of steamed asparagus and red and grilled red peppers. Mm. Um, oh, and, and let me read you some of the breakfasts that they were enjoying on our dime while they were flying to and from the Middle East. You have fresh omelet with borzine cheese, uh, sliced chives with sun-dried tomatoes, side of grilled artisan pork sausages and sautéed button mushrooms. One other one. Uh, French crepes with caramelized peaches, side of turkey bacon, and potato roasty. Now, remember, this is all just the airplane food, okay? These fancy feasts that I just read off, uh, they don't include what they may have had while they're actually on the ground in restaurants in the Middle East. Okay, that is just so much money and I'm super hungry now. I knew what most of that stuff was. I didn't know what beef carpaccio was, uh, but they also spent 300 bucks on it. So go Mm -hmm. figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got $340 for baklava, 
$230 for flower arrangements. Uh, Simon's meals were expected to be uh, specially plated. Keep this in mind. So she's the governor general, okay? She is uh, now His Majesty the King's representative here in Canada. We used to be Her Majesty the Queen's. Uh, so as governor general, uh, her meals were expected to be specially plated on China dishes, prepared with appropriate garnishes. And... <laughs> Franco, CTF supporters deserve some big credit for breaking this story for us. Yeah. But before we give them credit, let me just say, I love baklava. You know, me I too. love baklava. I get like, it with shawarma sometimes. Yeah. yeah. There's been a few <laughs> nights out here in Ottawa, more than a few, maybe two, maybe more than I'd like to admit, where I probably racked up a pretty big tab on baklava. <laughs> but... I spent my own money. Yeah, I didn't take money from my neighbors to spend hundreds of dollars on baklava for myself. But look, back to your point here. Uh, absolutely, man. Our supporters absolutely hit a home run, knocked this sucker out of the ballpark. They took action, and they're a huge reason that we're actually able to know about these costs. Okay, so so let me let let's go back in the way back machine and let's talk about how the story developed and what happened. So when the story first broke. And it was the National Post that first broke the story of the governor general and her entourage spending nearly six figures on airplane food to the Middle East. Well, what we did is we immediately filed some access to information requests to get, well, well, what were they actually spending this nearly $100,000 on? What type of food were they enjoying on our dime mm -hmm. while they were flying to and from the Middle East? So we got these records back. And we got these records back right around the time that the bureaucrats in charge of this trip were presenting to members of parliament on a government committee. <laughs> and the members of parliament were grilling these bureaucrats about the costs, right? Rightfully so. How do you manage to rack up nearly six figures on airplane food? Now, the bureaucrats were misleading the members of parliament on committee. The bureaucrats were saying, well, we're really surprised with these costs, too. Right. Like, how did these costs balloon? We had eggs. We had omelets. Mm -hmm. And the bureaucrats repeatedly told these members of parliament that they could not provide the in-flight catering, catering receipts because apparently they just didn't have that. Well, I was watching the committee meeting. What did I have in my hand? I had the receipts. Wow. that we got from the government. So right then and there, we knew that these bureaucrats weren't passing the sniff test. So what do we do? Well, we phoned up the National Post. We said, hey, we got the receipts. Here you go. The National Post ran a big story about the beef Wellington, the beef Carpaccio, and all the fancy food that they were having on airplane food. Okay, so then what happened next? Well, we told our member, we told our supporters that hey, these bureaucrats were misleading you. You need to you need to email, contact your member of parliament on this committee and yeah. tell them to bring the bureaucrats back to committee, answer for their misleading statements, but also to provide the full receipts for their for this trip. Right. Yep. And so I even after we sent out this email and our supporters took all the action that they did, I got a, I got a message from one of these members of parliament on the committee saying, whoa, whoa, Franco, you're flooding our inbox. You're flooding our inbox. Message received. Don't worry. We're going to do something about ah, it. Good. So, look, it's it, this is a legitimate win uh, yes. for our supporters and transparency um, because these bureaucrats blew way too much money on a trip. It looks like they spared no expense. But at the very least now. The committee is getting all the receipts back for international travel 
all the way back to 2014. And now we not just have the flight costs, but we have the costs of the entire uh, week long trip. We do. And I'm really glad that you zeroed in on this and you had the receipts in your hand and you forced them to bring those bureaucrats back to cough up these receipts. And this is just what we know about because I've worked on the Hill on in different capacities. This happens way too often. Bureaucrats who are often making six figures and who've been there forever playing dumb. And oopsie, the dog ate my homework or hoping nobody notices anything. This is about accountability and transparency. And I'm glad that we dragged the receipts out of them kicking and screaming. And now that it's on the record. But what do we do next, man? Like, what's the path forward? What do we want to see happen from here? Well, yeah, I mean, a huge, huge kudos to our supporters who took action. Yeah. I mean, if you're one of our supporters and you haven't taken action, then your first bit of homework is to, uh, hey, go to our petitions page on taxpayer.com, sign the petition to rein in Governor General Perks so that you can stand with tens of thousands of other Canadians and, and push for more action. Now, we're still waiting for all of these receipts to be to be uh, posted online. So we're going to continue to hold these bureaucrats accountable until they are all fully published online. Uh, we also need just more transparency from Rideau Hall, right? We need all of the governor general's expenses to be fully atypical. Uh, but even more than that, the governor general should proactively post all the receipts online, right? Taxpayers paid the bill. We deserve to know what our money is being spent on. But even this trip, this $1.3 million a week-long trip to the Middle East, it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to waste at Rideau Hall. Remember, you have the expense account for former governors general where they leave office and they can still expense taxpayers for about $200,000 every single year for the rest of their lives and up to six months after they pass. Uh, but then also you have the Julie Payette pension problem where Payette... She served for a little bit more than three years, and she's still eligible to collect an estimated $4.8 million through the pension to the age of 90. Absolutely unheard of, right? So with all of this type of wasteful spending at Rideau Hall, we should also see some legitimate budget reductions uh, from, from the governor general. Yeah, that's what we need to do going forward. So folks, uh, if you want to see the CTF story uh, on the National Post front page, uh, check out our show notes. If you have not yet signed that petition to rein in those Governor General perks that Franco just talked about, please go to our website, taxpayer.com, hit that up, sign that petition. You join our standing army that way. Yeah. So next time that we need to blast members of parliament or bureaucrats and force them to cough things up and be transparent, you're going to be part of that solution. And got to really put a point on this. This was a big win for transparency and taxpayers pushing back. We would not have had this information come to the public unless folks took, act, took action and sent in those emails. So kudos to folks for actually standing up and being heard.